Welcome to another VW Podcast. I'm Kevin. I'm Aaron. And we are discussing venture deals. Be smarter than your lawyer and venture capitalist by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. Today we are in chapter six, part two, which means that you've listened to chapter six, part one, hopefully, and the previous five installments. I guess six installments because we also split up chapter four. But anyways, let's jump into it, Aaron. So part two of chapter six is other terms of the term sheets. We covered some of the more material terms in the last podcast. And now we're going to get into the weeds a little bit on the minor but still very important terms of the term sheet. I think we talked about the 80-20 rule last week. So the terms that we're going to talk about here, especially like the IPO section, Aaron, takes up multiple pages on the term sheet, though it doesn't really ever come up. You don't use it all that often. However, it does come up in the drafting, and it is a, a, a point that needs to be negotiated and discussed. So we're going to cover it today. All right, let's start with restrictions on sales. We Our last point we discussed last week was voting rights. So now we're on restriction on sales. Aaron, when the book discusses restriction on sales or when a founder gets a term sheet that has a restriction on sales, what does that mean? It, I mean, I think that's what we usually mean when we use the term right of first refusal. Mm-hmm. It is the company's right to repurchase um, equity from usually founders um, or major stakeholders. Um, you know, typically it comes into play when you know, uh, maybe a founder's trying to clear a little cash and, and get some money in his or her pocket. And so they have somebody that's willing to buy their equity. Um, you know, the company wants to make sure they make, can maintain control. And so they have a right of first refusal, meaning they can go and say, okay, founder, um, you want to sell your equity. You have somebody willing to buy it. We want to buy it instead and we'll pay the same price. Where does the restriction come in? Why is it a restriction? Because the founder is restricted from selling his or her stock until the company has the uh, the opportunity to say, yes, I want to buy it or yes, I don't want to buy it. Now, this is almost universally placed on common stock. It is rare to be placed on preferred. So again, this is restriction that the common stock shareholders cannot sell their shares to a third party without first offering it to the preferred shareholders. Doesn't mean the common stock shareholders can't sell ever. It just means the preferred shareholders want the first bite of the apple. Well, and typically, won't the first bite go to the company? That's and correct. The secondary right going to the preferred? Thank you for clarifying that. And of course, it goes to the company. If the company is cash heavy, which they never are, but in the event the company is cash heavy and wants to repurchase some equity, it's better for everyone. Yes. So the company would have the first right and then the preferred. Now, a couple nuances here. First of all, if you're negotiating as a founder, you might want to carve out five, 10% of your equity, not of the company, whatever you want to negotiate, but we typically see five, 10% of your equity, maybe up to a quarter percent of the equity that you hold would be unrestricted, meaning you can go sell it in a secondary offering to go clear some cash off the table. A lot of time, founders who are at successful startups are cash poor, but equity heavy, and they might look good on paper. So a secondary offering during a large financing round would be an opportunity for those common shareholders to, or those founders to clear some cash um, off the table. Now, having the right of first refusal isn't the worst thing, but typically it's a 30-day period. So let's just say you're a common founder and you found some secondary purchaser who wants to buy some of your shares for a couple hundred grand. If you have to go back to that purchaser and say, well, I got to run it by the company first and they have 10 or 15 days, and then I got to run it by the preferred shareholders and they have 30 or 45 days, the purchaser is going to say, screw that. I'm not going to sit around and wait for all that. That's why you want to have a carve out as a founder. Also, I want to make the point every once in a while, a later stage financing 
investor, such as a big institutional VC, might negotiate a right of first refusal on existing preferred stock from previous rounds, right? Which again, isn't a terrible deal. They might want to sweep up as much stock as they can. So if a earlier stage, let's say a seed round investor is going to sell his or her shares, then the later stage investor might want to write a first refusal there. As an attorney or as a founder, what you want your attorneys to help you negotiate are just reasonable option periods there. Don't have, don't give the company and then the investors 30 days each. This t- takes too long. You know, the deal's going to die. So have short windows um, for which that, you know, that short windows for which that right of first refusal remains open. And, you know, from a founder's perspective, uh, beware of any of those uh, rights of first refusal for preferred just because you don't want to get into a situation where, you know, uh, sort of accidentally, according to you, but probably intentionally on the part of the investor. Now the, the investor has, you know, on an as converted basis as a majority ownership in the company. Right. And, you know, one is that investor, if they didn't already, are they going to take a majority of the preferred? But then, as Aaron mentioned, right, they could be working themselves into majority of the company, which could be significant. Uh, not a bad idea to put this into your bylaws. A lot of the more recent bylaw templates we've seen coming from Y Combinator and whatnot have a right of first refusal built into them, which we're definitely comfortable with. But that's what that term is. Okay, Aaron, next one, proprietary information and inventions agreement. We call this our confidential information and inventions assignment agreement. They're essentially the same thing. You want to tell the listeners what they are? Yeah. um, Anytime during this podcast that we've talked about making sure that you get the intellectual property um, that relates to the company out of the founder's heads or out of the employee's heads and into the company, this is what we're talking about. This is the documentation that typically founders will sign saying, I know that, you know, I conceived of this idea and this business prior to having a company formed. And so it wasn't, you know, technically in my work for the company that I came up with these ideas and these, you know, different practices. But now I'm going to go ahead and assign this all over to the company. And the company now owns everything. And, you know, on a going forward basis, they will own the intellectual property that I create that relates to the business. We see this come up more often than not dealing with domain names. You know, a lot of times when a company forms, the two co-founders or three co-founders run off and they've got this idea before they even incorporate the company, one of them goes and buys a domain name. Well, she might buy that domain name and put it in her name personally. And then a year later, if the founders get into a situation where they're not getting along and there might be a founder breakup, if that founder who registered the entity leaves the company and never assigned the domain name, the company might be screwed. So as a matter of practice, it is imperative that you get every single early stage service provider, employee, co-founder, whatnot to sign some sort of proprietary information invention agreement or our form is called a confidential information and invention assignment agreement. Same thing. Now, once you get later on, once you have employees and they're signing employment agreements, these provisions will be covered in their employment agreements. So this is why if you've worked for a later stage startup, you might not have heard of this term before because you probably already agreed to these provisions inside of your employment agreement. Early on with co-founders, you usually don't have employment agreements in place, but you do need this proprietary information and inventions assignment agreement. All right, moving on next. 
co-sale agreement, or as we like to call it, tag along. Aaron, you want to walk us through that one? Yeah, this is the right um, of the investors that if any of the founders want to sell their equity. So, it, you know, like we were talking about with the right of first refusal, this is in the event that the company passes on the right of first refusal and the investors also pass on the right of first refusal, the founder can then go sell some of her common stock. This is the right of the investor to say, I want to participate pro rata. I want to sell my pro rata uh, portion of my equity on the same terms uh, that the um, founder is selling her equity. Now, you might have that carve out like we talked about in the right of first refusal. So the founder can say, all right, I'm going to sell up to 10 or 20% of my own shares and I don't have to allow the preferred to tag along. But to the extent we get a good buyer, we're going to clear some some cash off the table and we're a couple rounds down the road. Sure, if we're gonna, if the founder is going to, an investor wants to be able to do so as well. Moreover, this also prevents investors from not being a part of the company or for investors from being a material stakeholder company to where the founder is no longer a material stakeholder, right? Let's just say you had this weird situation where a founder owned 60% of the business and wanted to sell 40% of the business for whatever reason. If that founder goes for 60 to 40%, now the founder only owns 20%, she might not be as motivi- motivated or incentivized as she once was. So if you're an investor, you want to be able to clear some cash off the table as well because you probably tied yourself to that founder. So that's called co-sale agreement is what the document looks like. They're commonly known as tag-along rights. And, you know, for those of you that are familiar with the NBCA documents, the right of first refusal and the co-sale or the tag-along are contained all within one document, which makes sense. All right, moving on in chapter six, the next thing the authors discussed was founders activities. This is pretty typical And frankly, if you're not willing to agree to this, we're going to have a problem. But the founders activity section says the founders are devoting 100% of professional time and effort to this endeavor. To the extent the founders are not, every once in a while, you might have some amazing research scientist who just came out of some university and she might be working on some other NASA super secret project a few hours a day or a few hours a week. That stuff needs to be disclosed and carved out. But it is the expectation that 100% of professional time will go through the company. Now, the point I want to make about this is a lot of founders, especially late-stage founders, they start getting active in the community. They might be asked to be on boards of other companies. That is a conflict that needs to be disclosed and waived or at least uh, agreed upon by the board prior to those things happening, especially if one of these things – one of these – these a term sheet or any docs have been signed, which limits the founder's activities. So you want to be real careful about where you're spending your time. Now, if you're involved at your church or if you coach your kids' little league team, that's okay. If you're working on a side hustle, that'd be odd, but it absolutely has to be disclosed because the expectation is that you are devoting 100% of your professional or work-related activities to the startup. Listen, I'm impressed by by the founders that have enough time and energy to have multiple irons in the fire, you know, spreading themselves across multiple different ventures and companies and what have you. Um, but when you look at it from the investor's perspective, the investor is investing money in this one company and they want to make sure that you're laser focused on, you know, creating as much value and, you know, generating as much revenue as you can for this the startup that they're investing in because, you know, chances are the investor isn't investing in all of your other side projects. And so 
they want to make sure that the money that they're putting into your company um, is is motivating you to put as much time and effort into that company as well. So if this is an issue, if you have any problem dedicating 100% of your time to that business, you need to have a very serious conversation with your advisors and the investors. We just don't ever see anyone pushing back on that. Okay, I'm going to fly by the next one, IPO, share purchase. This is just a, a term which says, if you're going to IPO, the investors get the right to buy X percent of the IPO. This rarely comes up. It's just really not negotiated all that much. I wouldn't spend a lot of time on it. At least um, in our world. <laughs> you know, whatever NVCA has is most likely fine. Discuss with your attorney if it is a negotiated term. Honestly, a lot of the term sheets we see doesn't even include this. Um, it might That language might get buried in the registration rights, right? But right. we just don't see it all that right. often. Okay, moving on. No shop agreement. This one's really, really important. This one comes up all the time, and I like the way the book addressed it when conflicts do come up. So a no shop agreement is really one of the only binding provisions of most term sheets, probably along with confidentiality. And the no shop agreement says that during the time that the investors are make are considering this investment or are doing their due diligence on the business, the company will not shop anywhere else. The company will not enter into discussions for an acquisition or an investment with any third party. Aaron, how do you typically see these agreements? Yeah, I mean, these, this, uh, this usually goes from you know when they sign the term sheet until the deal is final just which can because, be a long time yeah it can be a very long time but you know the point of it is you know from the investor's perspective you don't want your attorneys spending time and money to start preparing the definitive documents for this investment round unless you know that the company isn't out looking for a better deal um you know obviously you've spent a lot of time negotiating and getting to a certain point where you feel comfortable signing a term sheet. You don't want to then uh, give the company the opportunity to go say, Hey, look, we have the signed term sheet from XYZ investor. Um, can you give us a better deal? Let me give you guys an, an example of how this came up recently and how we dealt with it, because it, it can turn into a win-win. So we got a company client of ours that was getting a strategic investment. Okay. So a strategic investment from someone up or down the supply chain or someone who might be a potential acquirer. And because they wanted to spend a lot of time doing due diligence on a potential acquisition, they agreed to invest a million dollars in convertible note very quickly because convertible notes can be done with the option to invest up to another million dollars, either into that convertible note round or at a pre-agreed, um, uh, valuation for a, a seed round. And then they wanted the option to buy the business. And they wanted this to last for nine months. Well, they invested the first million dollars pretty quickly. And that was the agreement because the company needed the million dollars to operate. And then they were going to take their time on deciding the next million and to buy the business. But we can't have our clients sitting around for nine months waiting for a better investment deal or a potential acquisition. So what we do in that situation is you say, okay, we will give you that option. We'll give you that exclusivity period, but we're going to turn it into a, an option. And that option is going to last 10, 15, or 30 days, something like that. So look, we're not actually we're not actively shopping, but if XYZ, you know, Google or big company, tech company comes and says, Hey, here's an amazing offer for you guys, we need to be able to move on that quickly. So what we did, we negotiated, I believe it was a 10-day right of first offer. So that means if we get a bona fide offer from a third party, the we would take that to the other company for 10 days to the investor and they would have 10 days to review it and make a uh, you know agree to buy us at the same terms or to to waive the no shop clause now this does get difficult because even though we had that 10 day right if google started sniffing around and wanted to buy us and 
in this particular case, Google wasn't the right exit partner, but just an example. Google's going to get frustrated that any offer they make is really just a stalking horse to go make an offer somewhere else. So you want to limit that time period as much as possible. And the potential acquirers generally understand that these things exist. But man, you don't want it to go for 15, 30, 45 days, 10 days, maybe, you know, 10 days would be fine, 15, 30 max. And make sure, you know, you disclose to any potential acquirer early on when they're sniffing around that this exists so that they don't get frustrated when they think, okay, great, we have a deal. Correct. Now, the other part of this is, in all reality, when we see this happen, most VCs are good partners and they want to do what's best for the company. So unless they've invested, you know, unless we're at the wire, right, we're about to sign docs because of the legal fees that go into docs about, you know, 30 to 50 percent of them get done a couple weeks before. And the last 50 percent is done the three to five days beforehand, you know, maybe a week right. beforehand because there's so much back and forth. So I think Feld and Mendelssohn used some examples here of where they said, you know what, that's better for you. Go ahead. And we're, we really want to invest, but an exit better if you go for it. And then the company said, hey, here's some advisor shares. Or the company said, hey, here's your legal fees, which was just good, you know, good karma for the ecosystem as a whole. But that's the situations we've we've been in when we've had a, a client of ours who's been approached by a VC or represent a VC, and we talk to someone else, and a third party comes in. Every time it's been very collaborative, and it's just smart planning on the founder's part because eventually they will exit the company and they'll go start another company and you want to make sure that you have a good strong relationship with this VC even if you didn't end up taking money from them even if you said hey we we need to get out of this no shop um you know if you throw a little something their way then you know for your next company that you found they probably will still be looking at it. It's just it's just good business sense because, yeah, those relationships are really important. So we want to be very clear that a no-shop agreement or the binding, excuse me, a, um, a binding option, exclusivity period are generally binding. And there's not a whole lot of binding terms in the term sheet. And if you're going to give a long period, then you might want to consider a breakup fee. If you're giving them three months, to negotiate exclusive, exclusively, you say, okay, fine, but I want a $25,000 breakup fee. And work with your attorney to, come to figure out what's material there because you're going to, those legal costs that you've incurred are going to be much more painful to you than to the VC if the VC gets far down the road and decides not to invest. Um, but a, a very, very key component of the term sheet, make sure you're thinking about it carefully and discuss it with your attorney. All right, two more quick ones. One is indemnification, and this just states that the company will indemnify investors and then also board members to the greatest extent possible. This is important because you know if a company might have some sort of um, patent infringement claim against them or an IP infringement or some sort of securities issue that the company may have uh, may have unknowingly stepped into, the board and the investors, it may be really hard to get through to the investors, but the board generally wants to be indemnified and you're going to have an investor rep on the board. So a couple ways of doing this. One, you have an indemnification clause. Two, you should, by the time you get to series A round, you should have DNO insurance. Isn't that what we're typically seeing, Aaron? Yeah. And, you know, DNO insurance is directors and officers insurance. It basically is the insurance policy that, that covers directors and officers of the, of the company for any sort of claim that may arise from their service as a director or an officer of the company. Look, as we've stated before, you're you're going to have litigation threats. You might even be sued. Don't be scared by it. It's just part of running a business, and it's not nearly as scary as it seems. 
So when these things come up, the directors want to make sure that they're protected to the fullest extent possible. Honestly, I don't see a whole lot of Series A deals done, maybe none, without DNO insurance in place. It's not that expensive, it's not, right? Yeah, it's not cheap, but it's not expensive. Right. You're looking at, I don't know, five to 15 grand a year. Um, and, so you just going to bake that for, in. What, a million? Yeah, a couple million dollars yeah. usually in coverage. If you're in a really highly contested uh, technology field, it might get a little bit more. And you can expand that type of insurance. We we should have a different, different conversation. I know that we've blogged about this before, so I'm going to ask um, our producer to put this in the show notes, talk about the different types of insurances. But anyway, so that's what indemnification is for. And then finally is assignment. Assignment is just like it sounds. It allows the investors to assign their purchase to another entity. This happens all the time with VCs when they might be moving funds around, not dollars around, but like changing funds, changing their actual investment funds, and they need to assign from one fund to another or for tax purposes. Right. Or we see this all the time with our high net worth individuals. Yeah. Right, Aaron? Well, and it also comes up you know, in the context of an investor's preemptive right or pro rata right because you know they may have invested in, say, fund four, but now when it's time for them to exercise their pro rata right, they're on fund six. And so they need to be able to assign that pro rata right or that preemptive right to the current fund. And then from the individual perspective, a lot of times they want to put into a trust or some other estate planning vehicle. So generally, we don't have a problem with assignment clauses. Just make sure that they're not assigning it to a competitor right. for whatever reason, it, You know, if that um, if that could come up. But pretty typical clause, we don't have a lot of issue, whole lot of issue with it. So that wraps up chapter six, other terms of the term sheet. The next chapter is on the cap table, and that is a very short chapter. It's only three pages, but we're going to talk for a long time about it because it's something that's near and dear to uh, Aaron and I's hearts. Yeah, it's something we maybe geek out over yeah. a little too much. Yeah, we love cap tables. We think a good cap table model will be very helpful for a company. So we'll talk about that next week. As always, show notes, including references, defined terms, related content is located on our website. That's VelaWoodLaw.com. Go to blog, then podcasts, and look for the Office Hours podcast. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. The podcast is called Office Hours. And then follow us on Twitter at VelaWoodLaw and on Instagram at VelaWood. Appreciate you listening. Talk to you next time. The Velawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at